Uh, we, are, uh, we are happy to be here today for the sixth lecture in the School of Theology Treatment of the Doctrine of Scripture. And I see we even have international guests with us here who have come all the way from uh, Europe. And uh, we're glad to have you folks from elsewhere as well. Uh, let's open up with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercies uh, and that your Bible is a mercy to us that you give us because of your love of Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, your word is true and sure, and you have spoken in it uh, of your great love of your people in spite of themselves. And so, O oh God, we thank you that you give us the gift uh, of Holy Scripture, uh, that we might learn more about ourselves and more about you, and that we might be uh, able to rejoice uh, with the good news of the gospel uh, because of your work in our hearts and lives. We ask, O oh God, that you would help us this evening uh, to think your thoughts after you, and may all that we do and sing, uh, do and say bring you glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's good to be back with you in the School of Theology. It's a joy to be together. We've been talking uh, in this uh, course of the School of Theology about God speaking to us through general and special revelation. And last time we were over in the corner room and spoke uh, together about three major chair texts. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 2 Peter 1.19 and John 10.35. These classic chair texts on uh, how uh, God tells us uh, that the text in front of us of the Bible uh, was produced in the quality of it, that it cannot be broken, uh, that it is the breathed word of God, and that uh, it is subject to his interpretation, uh, a spiritual interpretation, because he is the primary author rather than we ourselves and we said that this understanding of inspiration uh, is applied to the books, technically, to the text, and that we have a way of speaking using that same English word with regard to human authors, but we have to be careful there because it's not just an emotionally heightened state that's being talked about. It's a uh, quality of the text. We also introduced the fact that inspiration is organic. That is that uh, the divine and the human um, uh, in the Bible uh, that is a divine author and a human author, and that the human author, author's work and, and the uh, study behind it and uh, the cultural and linguistic factors and et cetera are, are fully human. And therefore, uh, that means not that they're sinful, but rather that they have the qualities of what it is to be human. And so you have God uh, sometimes dictating the text uh, to his human author, uh, but oftentimes human authors would write more than they knew. Uh, their own personality was used. Uh, there was a full engagement of their history, uh, of the ideas that uh, they had been exposed to, but a protection of God the Holy Spirit so that they would not uh, make an error and lead the church astray. And we said that the great analogy for this is the Christological analogy. Uh, Jesus Christ is fully divine and fully human. He's the God-man. And, and so he is truly the Son of God, uh, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, he adds to himself a human body and a human soul, and so he has real human emotions, real human toes and, and feet and fingers and toes. He, he has a real human mind. He has a real human heart. Uh, everything about him uh, that is human is truly human, yet without sin, and that is in total submission to the divine. So you have both divine aspects and human aspects, divine qualities and human qualities, and the biblical text reflects that. And so you have, uh, for example, in the Apostle Paul, a certain range of vocabulary, a certain set of words that he's uh, most comfortable or happy working with. 
Uh, you have uh, themes that he enjoys uh, plowing, but all of it at the same time is undergirded by the Holy Spirit, superintended by him, uh, directed by him, so that what is breathed out by the apostle or one of the prophets in the Old Testament is truly uh, the inspired word of God. So tonight uh, we move on uh, to say more about the implications of this organic nature of inspiration that, that the Bible is, is fully divine, but yet it is also uh, truly human. And so what does that mean? Well, the first thing that it means to us is that the Bible is a human book. Um, it is, uh, um, this really, this point is the rationale for everything else that we'll say under this heading. Uh, that is, uh, that the book is uh, a book which can, is full of human vocabulary. Uh, it is full of human grammar. It is full of human statements and argument and reasoning. It means we can engage the text on the same level that we do other human texts in the sense that we uh, come to an understanding by what the text says uh, of the arguments and claims that it is making. God uh, uses different styles among human authors. It's not uh, all in the style of Moses who wrote the first book. Jeremiah has a different style. Uh, when you get to Luke, uh, there is the style of a uh, professional medical doctor and an amateur historian. Uh, when you get to uh, the Gospel of John, there you have a, a mind that has been uh, steeped in and has a knowledge of Greek philosophy, some elements of it that have been Christianized. And so he uses those terms and concepts to the glory of God. Uh, the temperament, the education, the literary capacity... And the circumstances of each of the authors varies because they're finite human beings. And being carried along by the Holy Spirit, something of their humanity uh, peeks through. We can perhaps most easily see this in the, in the Gospels, uh, where the Gospel of Matthew has been traditionally understood to have a Jewish or a Pharisaical target audience, uh, whereas the Gospel of Mark uh, has a different uh, textual quality. It's shorter and appears to have been written for a more Gentile audience under uh, Mar uh, Matthew or Mark, writing under the umbrella of the authority of the Apostle Paul, uh, the Apostle to the Gentiles. Luke's Gospel is highly stylized, puts a strong emphasis upon miracles, which is not surprising given his, med given his medical background, and he is very particular about the historical events in their order, having researched the matter uh, using the normal methods of uh, human historiography, uh, interviewing witnesses, etc. And so uh, his comes across as being uh, a book that goes with the Acts of the Apostles, which gives us a historical presentation uh, of the early church. Uh, John's gospel is more philosophical. It, it seeks to fill in the gaps. Uh, it, it almost presumes or probably does presume a knowledge of uh, one or more of the synoptic gospels and seems to have been written uh, with uh, a, a deep knowledge of Judaism, but for a more uh, Gentile philosophical argument out in the empire. So uh, four Gospels, and they don't all read just the same because they have different personalities of human authors. Uh, it would be like this evening if uh, I gave you a pop quiz, and the pop quiz was, why do you think Bob Stacy is late tonight? Each of you would go about the writing task in a different way. Um, one of you would argue in your paper, uh, Bob Stacy is late because of uh, the bad traffic. 
Others would say, well, Bob Stacy probably has been held at work. He's a dean. He has a lot of responsibility. Others would say, Bob Stacy is not late. You just started early. <laughs> well, that one aside, uh, because we did start uh, not early. Uh, but uh, we could have different uh, emphases and styles and perspectives. And, and I have a sneaking suspicion that uh, not only was he uh, late at work because he TM'd me that he was going to be held, but uh, I suspect he's hit more, hit more traffic at some of the pinch points than he would like. This is, this is Houston, after all. So uh, you can have different uh, human aspects that come to the fore. Some were learned like Luke. Some were more clearly untaught like Mark. And God uses each one. I don't want you to come away thinking that on the human side, um, those that are socially or educationally or politically elite are the ones really that are very useful. And uh, those that are uh, less learned and are, for example, poor fishermen like uh, the Apostle Peter, that their works aren't to be paid much attention to. Uh, Not at all, because the divine author is the Holy Spirit, and he carried each of them along, had an important text for each one of them to write. Now, the second item listed here is ordinary historiographical methods used by human authors. I, I uh, mentioned that in passing in the other because these uh, all flow out of this first point. They used records. They used other books, oral tradition, eyewitness accounts. For example, in Luke, we see the shift from they, 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 they in the third person to we, 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 we in the first person. Uh, they used genealogies, some of which may have been written down, most of which probably had been memorized uh, at some point as they were handed down uh, uh, through the family lines. There were letters from archives. Uh, These ordinary research methods were used by one author and another, and that's evidence to the fact of the real humanity of the Bible. Uh, That may not strike you as a a very important or persuasive thing. Perhaps perhaps you, uh, in your own mind, think, well, if it was just a only a divine book uh, that fell from an egg from heaven that this would be better. Oh, no. Oh, no. Then you would have all of the difficulties you have with the Quran. Um, interpretation of the Quran is a very sticky matter because you only have a divine author. Uh, the human author is uh, non-existent in their own tradition, and therefore, how do you know what the transcendent God means by what he says? Uh, God has uh, touched us in the flesh by the incarnation. Uh, Jesus knew uh, Hebrew. Aramaic, and he may well have known Greek as well uh, from his education uh, due to it being the commercial language of the day. And so he was uh, able to communicate with his disciples. Um, Human language was something that uh, he was the master of, and uh, therefore uh, it's God, the person of the uh, eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, communicating with us. Real truth, true truth. True statements, uh, real communication taking place by divine initiative, not only, not only by divine nature, but also through human nature via the incarnation. And that gives us the grounds on which to be able to understand that his ministry is extended then by the prophets of old and the apostles which he appointed and called and gifted and poured out the Holy Spirit upon them. The presence of the Holy Spirit in their life uh, bridged that gap between Uh, the second person of the Trinity in themselves, and the Holy Spirit was able to do in them by carrying them along and giving them those words without violating necessarily uh, their humanity, but rather uh, protecting it and undergirding it so that all of what he wished was written and and their own uh, sinfulness and shortcoming did not intrude on the final text. The Spirit guided these men 
uh, in the use, for example, of these sources. Uh, thirdly, um, you, we see the humanity of the Bible in its parallel to secular sources. Uh, there's parallels of language, vocabulary, for example, phraseology, and of teaching uh, of the Bible um, and secular sources. So Paul, on the one hand, and rabbinical methods on the other, rabbinical writings on the other, uh, both have an overlap between them. And uh, that doesn't cause us disturbance. That gives us great encouragement because it's further evidence that Paul really was uh, living when he said and he really was a a Pharisee and that he understood their system from the inside out. Uh, Sometimes we we dig up an old cuneiform tablet uh, in Assyria and it has some commonality with uh, Daniel or with... uh, uh, something in the Pentateuch, for example, and some Christians begin to get a little nervous. Oh, no, you know, maybe, maybe this is just where the Bible came from. Uh, not at all. Uh, the, the overlap between the two thematically and uh, technically is only further evidence of the Bible's truthfulness and reliability. Uh, so the humanity of the Bible is not something to be scared of. It's something to be appreciated uh, and uh, used apologetically. Uh, the Bible was not written in a cultural vacuum. And so what that means is when you run up on a verse you don't know, don't worry too much. You don't understand. Don't worry too much. Uh, there were people in the past that understood what that meant culturally. Um, I think I've mentioned before to you the baptism of the dead passage in 1 Corinthians 15. You know, I, I'm not absolutely sure what that means. And so, uh, and I think most of the scholars that have written on that are in the same boat that I am. I think that's something we've sort of forgotten uh, a true appreciation of. But in the Corinthian church and in the mind of the Apostle Paul and those around him, uh, that was a burning issue that needed to be addressed. And they understood uh, that because of the cultural commonality. The fact that we can actually forget things uh, is evidence uh, of the Bible's humanity, and therefore it touches us and can rightly uh, make a difference in our thinking and living. Let's see how to do all these at one time. There we go. There is, the uh, scholars technically put it, a cultural interpenetration between the Bible and the surrounding secular culture. For example, in the book of Daniel, there are a number of instruments that are mentioned, and you can go outside the Bible and find use of those same terms in other languages, and there's some overlap. Like, for example, um, if I use the term zither, um, there is a... There is a linguistic overlap between that word in English and its origin in other languages. Um, And so uh, we have this uh, cultural interpenetration between our English vocabulary and and other languages all around the world. I I don't know off the top of my head the origin of the term, is it didgeridoo in Australia? But uh, the Oxford English Dictionary knows, and you can look it up and watch the Watch the movement of a word through various di- uh, languages and dialects into English, and you can see its, its common usage as it develops. Uh, words even evolve in their, in their meaning among humankind, and so you can begin to trace uh, the dating of a book, the dating of a phrase, the, uh, the, the backwards reach culturally of an idea, uh, and all of this helps uh, us to see its historical importance and accuracy. Uh, the, we have to remember, however, that... If there's an idea in the surrounding culture that a Bible writer picks up and uses in his text, that he is not slavishly devoted to that source. He uses it for the glory of God. He transforms it. Um, We might even be so bold as to say he Christianizes it. 
That's what John does with the, the term logos. Uh, it is Christianized uh, as it's deployed in his writing. So you can't say, oh, there's the word logos in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, the logos, and then say, what does that mean? It means exactly what Greek philosophy said back here. No, he's using Greek philosophy for a Christian theological end, and it's something that his audience would appreciate and value him for, uh, his learning, his knowledge of their world, and etc. But that doesn't mean that uh, somehow he is intellectually demoted. Rather, it's a sign of his intellectual ability and promotion. See, I, I told you, Dr. Stacy, we'd come back. So, We've had sort of an informal pop quiz about where you were to make a point. Welcome. The, um, the fourth point about the organic inspiration of Scripture, because of that, um, human authors make distinctive individual contributions. Uh, Isaiah, for example, uh, emphasizes God, the Holy One of Israel. And you know, if you had been caught up in a vision and you had seen the heavenly temple, and you had seen the Son of God on the throne and his robe filling the temple and felt everything shake and the angels and cherubim and seraphim praising him, that would be one of your emphases too in the rest of your writings. Uh, so his own life impacts his own interest in themes. Jeremiah is more personal and he's more uh, individually confrontive uh, in his message. And so we see in his text over and over again, my, 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 my. And it's his own life situation uh, that uh, uh, is being highlighted. Hosea is the prophet who emphasizes uh, uh, loving kindness, the loving kindness and mercy, his covenant love of God, covenant faithfulness, and uh, uh, the whole uh, family uh, marriage situation into which he was instructed to be involved uh, may well be at the root of that. Paul emphasizes uh, one of the terms, one of the terms for divinity, uh, the term Lord or Kyrios. He, he mentions that over and over and over and over again. Well, if you were the, if you were the gospel or the uh, apostle to the Gentiles taking the gospel to uh, Greek language and influenced uh, Gentile uh, religious thinking, then you would uh, put a strong emphasis on that term as well. So there are, um, there are items in the Bible uh, that are reflective of individual authors' contributions, which highlights their real humanity. Uh, fifthly, there's a development of thought within different authors. Um, individual authors themselves can grow in their understanding and grasp of the truth. For example, in the, in the Acts of the Epistles, there's a growing understanding and awareness of the Gentile mission as God wants it to be carried out. You can hear the gears turning in the minds of the early church as you're reading in the book of Acts. Oh, you mean they can respond to the gospel too? And you can think, well, I'm not real sure about this, but the Holy Spirit is being given to them. Oh, this is God's imprimatur upon this. And, and it's one of those very human things to have to learn a lesson not once, but maybe two or three times. That happens in the life of the early church concerning the Gentile mission. So uh, these are evidences of real uh, growth and development. Uh, the early Pauline writings versus the later Pauline writings, you can see uh, that there is a growth in certain areas, for example, ecclesiology, and an appreciation for the establishing of regular church uh, order and structure. Uh, but this does not mean that uh, the early Paul contradicts the later Paul or that somehow... Uh, 
The early Paul is uh, of such a low theological quality that it would be of no use or aid in people's lives. Not at all. Oftentimes, it's the young, early, how shall I say it, radical writings <laughs> that are the paradigm breakers and that really shake people up. We all study in Calvin studies, for example, the big, giant, two-volume, 1559 edition of, the, of Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. And I, I commend it to you. Go ye therefore to Westminster John Knox Press and buy a copy. Uh, read it uh, every day to your family, one, one sentence at a time, and uh, you will have done well. Uh, but you know, a very um, much uh, uh, rapid and exciting and almost breathtaking read is the 1536, the original first edition of the Institutes, uh, which is also, I think, in print uh, still in English translation. And it is... Uh, it's a little pocket-sized volume. Okay, the, they add a bunch of footnotes and long introductions and, and great reflections at the end, and they add some indices and pack it out so they can charge $25. But in, the rea- in reality, just kind of in the middle is this very simple, straightforward text, and it's the one that made John Calvin famous. It's, it's, the, it's the book that really systematized the theology of the Reformation for so many in Europe, and, and it was... After that first edition was published, that people kept bringing him problems and wanting his aid and help, and so he kept adding to his volume and and sharpening his pencil, as it were, and making it better and better and better through the years. It's a very sophisticated, comprehensive kind of textbook uh, at the end of that whole process, but at the very beginning, it's a a dynamic little book. And so... um, uh, it's not that the older is, or the early is bad and the later is good. There's a, there's a human dimension uh, with a growing theological sophistication that we need to appreciate. Uh, the sixth item here is a, is a very uh, bold statement. It says that proper biblical criticism is okay. Because of the human aspects of the biblical text, we can do things like say, wow, I wonder what the sources behind Luke's gospel were. And so you can do source criticism. Uh, you can do the same thing with Old Testament texts. Uh, or you can do redaction criticism. My goodness, when I compare First and Second Kings to First and Second Chronicles, I seem to have a different kind of editor uh, in um, shaping and molding the story's presentations for different agendas from different perspectives. Let's study this editor that must have been working under inspiration of the Holy Spirit as well. And so you can uh, begin to see different emphases in the text. Uh, You can do form criticism and look at early oral sources behind the genealogies, for example. Uh, And then it begins to make more sense why there are 14, 14, 14, or 12, 12, 12, depending upon what genealogy you're looking at. Because if you had to memorize all those names, not just pronounce them, but memorize them, you would want it to be in the form of a jingle, too. Um, my Hebrew professor, uh, years ago, the first one I had, he, he was, he was uh, ethnically Jewish and uh, had come to faith in Christ, and he struggled long and hard about how to teach silly seminarians Hebrew, particularly to, to learn the Hebrew uh, vocabulary or Hebrew uh, alphabet and, and then begin memorizing vocabulary. And he, uh, he, finally, he finally set the Hebrew alphabet to Yankee Doodle Dandy. And, uh, you know, guys would walk around campus. You could tell in the first few weeks when they, in Hebrew when they got to uh, Alf, Beth, Gimbal, Dalit, Wild Zion. On and on and on they went around campus. But then one day uh, there was an intramural football scrimmage, 
And uh, one of the seminarians playing um, uh, uh, linebacker, I think, was was smashed by another student. And he got a he not only got a concussion, but he was knocked out. And they took him to the hospital, knocked out. And when he woke up in the hospital, he was singing that song. And the professor decided that was an indication that it was just too powerful. He shouldn't teach it to anyone <laughs> ever again. But uh, the point here is, is that it's okay to look at oral tradition background material. Now, now liberals, liberal theologians have, and scholars have taken these different categories, and they have been uh, abusive, uh, theologically abusive in the way that they have have worked in those categories. They have said things like, well, this is what the text says, but, but they really got this from an oral tradition, and the text doesn't, isn't correct. It's the oral tradition that's correct. And, and let me show you how I can play with vowels and how I can shift continents, and I, I can turn the obvious oral tradition into mush so that it really doesn't mean very much at all, and what we have is a great evolutionary progression of human language and thought that results in this text that doesn't have a religious hold on me at all. And that's just dishonest. Uh, you have others uh, who will uh, do a structural criticism and they'll see a passage and instead of appreciating the structure and order and form of the passage, that this is a way also of God communicating and uh, uh, they will take it and say, oh, this isn't a narrative. This isn't a narrative. This is a literary structure. And therefore, you don't have to believe any of the facts that are present here. Uh, this is a common thing that people like to do with the first chapter of Genesis and creation. Uh, they like to notice certain structural parallels between the first three days of creation and the next three days of creation, one creating a sphere on day one, and, and on day four that sphere is filled up. And on day two there's the creation of a second sphere filled up on day five. And on the third day there's a creation of another sphere of creation, and it's filled up on day six. And then we all get to... Uh, we all get to rest on the seventh day. See how this is a, a, a structure, and therefore you don't have to believe anything that it says about all this day business. That's just all lies, lies, sweet little lies. And that's a liberal, abusive way of doing theology that is misusing the text, um, that God would give us not only words and not only ideas, but words and ideas in a certain structure and form and order uh, is a testimony to the glory of God and a further highlighting of the glories of his truth. It shouldn't be used to try to overturn the truth. Uh, that is, uh, is an aggressive uh, bullying of the text. Well, we could, we could go on and on in these areas. Um, let me mention one scholar's name who has devoted a good part of his life to uh, confronting this sort of silliness. Uh, this is uh, Don Carson, D.A. Carson, if you ever get a chance at the maybe the Lanier Theological Library or somewhere to hear him speak, as he periodically does, I commend a good listen to uh, D.A. Carson. Uh, sometimes you'll find him in the online journal uh, you know, of Together for the Gospel, uh, Themelios, uh, writing an introduction. I think he edits it, or an article, and uh, sometimes he'll engage in these kinds of topics. He, he published uh, extensively in the volume Scripture and Truth, uh, which he and uh, Woodbridge uh, um, we're responsible for editing. But he has, a, for example, an article on redaction criticism there that's very helpful. All right, the, the point here is, is that the Bible is a human book and therefore it has qualities uh, that are human because it is organically inspired. The text is organically inspired. But this inspiration is not partial, it's full. The whole text is inspired. Uh, it's not that uh, every uh, even word is inspired, but every odd word isn't.
It's not that uh, some of the words are inspired, but others uh, are just to be ignored. Uh, All of the original is inspired, even though the grammar is not always great. You know, um, maybe maybe I'm not the only one, or maybe I am the only one, but you know, in our family... As I start looking back, uh, looking at cousins, and I start looking back over our family line, um, uh, we have a, a very varied background in our family. I, I have dairy farmers in uh, uh, mid-Virginia, uh, and um, uh, we have possession of some of, I guess, two generations back, textbooks uh, for school that they used, and uh, it was simple country education. And uh, uh, they, uh, they didn't go to Harvard and Yale. Uh, but they love the Lord. They learned to read so they could read their Bible and milk cows and uh, look after the community. And uh, they uh, were honorable before God in that way. And, and I have some others in North Carolina that come from very humble roots. Uh, they, had trouble, uh, they had trouble putting food on the table uh, sometimes. And, and uh, their vocabulary, I can remember, boy, I might get in trouble with some of you. I can remember as a youth hanging out around the tobacco barn during tobacco smoking season because uh, that was their cash crop. And, and uh, God bless them, they couldn't put three sentences together in the Queen's English. But you know what? It's not that, it's not that they're bad because of that. And uh, on a good day, you know, if, uh, if I or, or one of my children can put together a sophisticated sentence that we're somehow better, uh, you can say a bunch of nonsense with bad grammar or with good grammar. And you can say uh, uh, very profound things uh, either with bad grammar or with good grammar. And sometimes it actually is more memorable and helpful if the grammar is not all that sophisticated. Peter was a fisherman. Now, I have news for you. His grasp of, of Greek grammar was really bad. Um, the meanest thing that a Hebrew professor or a Greek professor can do to his students in uh, basic Greek classes in seminary is to say, you know, instead of giving you a simple text to translate like out of the Gospel of John or an Epistle of John, You've been kind of a nasty class, so I'm going to give you a text out of Second Peter to translate. Let's just see how you do, because it's hard to understand and translate. Uh, the book of Revelation is a little tough. And John, who, whose other books are very orderly in their grammar and communication, uh, communicability, uh, he runs into a simple problem when writing down the book of Revelation, and that is that the events that are described there and that he saw and had to write down were so absolutely emotionally and spiritually overwhelming that he had trouble remembering uh, to put the nouns and verbs in the right order. You end up with lots of, lots of uh, uh, exclamations and, and lots of uh, participles and lots of uh, dependent clauses without a, uh, an independent clause to hang them on. And it's not that the text is wrong. It's that the grammar's not very clean, and the grammar's not very clean for a very good reason. He saw heaven. And he saw uh, people being uh, thrown into the lake of fire. He, he had an amazing uh, vision that the Lord gave him and book to communicate uh, to all the rest of us. So uh, we thank God for it and are blessed just by what we have. But grammar and style are not always so simple or great. But that doesn't mean good or bad or right or wrong. Uh, and the, uh, 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 the inspiration and perfection of the original uh, is what is in view. That doesn't mean that somebody can't make a bad translation. I think I've said before the, uh, the translation known as The Message by Eugene Peterson. Um, please don't let that be the Bible you read regularly because 
he didn't even intend to translate the Bible very well there. He, he translates what he thinks, what he wishes the Bible said rather than what it does say in some cases. And, and God never promised that people weren't going to do that. Marcion did it, Old Testament or uh, early church heretic. Um, this has been a common problem down through the years. It's, it's kind of the uh, Mark Twain syndrome. Well, if it didn't say that, it ought to. Um, kind of thing, and, and you get that. Uh, but the original is what is inspired and therefore fully inspired. Uh, and the writers themselves were not always inspired. Um, Peter, we're told in Galatians, uh, he went astray at one point. And uh, another puzzle had to confront him and straighten him out on that, challenge him. So it's um, uh, the text, when inspired by the Holy Spirit, is inspired it's not as if they get that power in their hands under their control. It's not like an ex-cathedra thing, uh, to draw an analogy from recent history. Uh, it's, uh, it's not that the power is vested in the man. It's that the man is uh, put into the office and used uh, to the glory of God in spite of himself. And this fullness of inspiration and the proper nature of inspiration behind it is what proves or implies a doctrine of inerrancy that the Bible uh, is without error in all that it asserts. Uh, you can take a passage and twist it out of context. You can take uh, you can take your scissors and just cut one little part of a verse out and and turn it into a sentence that isn't true. But uh, as it as it is intended, as the text uh, asserts, uh, the Bible is true in all that it says. When you say Peter wasn't always inspired, he was inspired when he wrote his. Yes, Peter was inspired when he wrote his letters. But he could—he uh, was perfectly capable of making a mistake when he was not under inspiration. Uh, this is not to say that uh, uh, the apostle Peter was never rude to his wife at some point or wrong in his judgment about uh, uh, financial matters. Uh, it's not to—it's uh, not to say that uh, God protected him in each and every situation of his life. It's when he was writing text that God wanted produced as part of the canon. That is when he was superintended. And uh, we see him um, refusing to eat with Gentiles who have been converted and who have the Holy Spirit. Uh, we see him being fearful of the non-Christian Judaizers who were trying to hang out in the Christian church and, and twist the church into heresy. And Paul had to call him on it. Now, praise the Lord, you know, the, God was very gracious to him. And uh, he knew what was right. Uh, by the work of God in his life, an example, and things he witnesses, before he made that mistake. And so uh, Peter um, knew better, and he was fearful of men, and Paul, who was, I think, fearful of no man, we can say, uh, Paul uh, called him on it and shamed him into uh, repentance. So uh, an apostle, uh, as a man, can repent. But, but of course, when, um, uh, when Paul is under inspiration, he doesn't make any error because the Holy Spirit's the one superintending him yes good question all right i think uh this is probably a good point to stop and take a break and uh then we'll let uh, dr stacy uh, come up in just a moment we got refreshments here for you and if anybody needs to get another book or a syllabus they're here as well thank you Folks, if I can encourage you to take a seat, we'll go ahead and get started with part two. When we were together last, we were talking about chapters 9 and 10 out of Jeffrey's Bite-Sized Theology. 
You recall the two topics we discussed were grace and regeneration. And grace, just to sort of review and remind ourselves, uh, Jeffrey points out it's not a matter of sort of self-help, right? We live in a culture that emphasizes the, the notion of sort of taking care of oneself or healing oneself. Go to any uh, significant bookstore and you'll find shelf after shelf of, of books devoted to that very topic, right? And everybody's got their own plan and you know, just buy my book and, and, and you can fix this problem or that problem. Uh, but that's really not the way that Scripture describes our condition, is it? Uh, the, the, probably the best passage is, is out of Ephesians, in which we're, uh, we're described as being dead in our sins. Dead people don't help themselves as much as they might try. And grace, of course, the notion of grace implies a free gift from God. He does this thing, right? This, this is not something that we sort of take control over. It's not something that, that we can even really contribute to. Uh, it's, it's a matter of grace. It's a matter of, of God intervening and, and doing a work in our lives. Of course, then the, the next chapter follows from that. We talked about the notion of regeneration, literally uh, meaning sort of rebirth, to be born again. Of course, this is the famous passage in which Jesus uh, speaks with Nicodemus, who, who seems to misunderstand even what that might mean. He thinks of it as a physical birth, perhaps. But you know, can, I, can I go back to my mother's womb? How can this happen? But Jeffrey points out that's still even a pretty good analogy. What, what part did you play in your physical birth? Did you determine the timing? Did you, you know, pick the location? No, you, you have nothing to do with that. You are completely kind of just a, you're present, right, in, at your birth. In most cases, it works that way. But you have no control or authority over the situation at all. It's not a partnership between you and mom. It's just, this is just what happens. And something similar can be said with our spiritual regeneration. We don't make that happen. Uh, I love to put it this way, but when, when Jesus calls Lazarus out of his tomb, he doesn't say, if you ask me, I'll raise you from the dead. If you uh, come halfway out, I'll get you the rest of the way out. He, there's no sort of partnership. There's no sort of you know, equal set, sets of contributions. Jesus does this thing. And the same is true for us in terms of our own salvation. Jesus regenerates us. Without that, then there's, there's nothing to talk about. So the next couple of chapters here, chapters 11 and 12, is what we'll discuss tonight. And I'm going to take a moment here just to say something which I think will come as, as no shock to any of you. When we get back together, I want to discuss chapters 13 and 14 two weeks from now. I, just, I know that sounds crazy. But we're going to take a look at, at chapters 11 and 12. Chapter 11, Jeffrey entitles, Repentance and Faith. That's subtitled, Turning from Sin to God. You can see kind of, if you just look at this, these, these series of chapters, you, you can see kind of a progression here, right? Faith, I'm, I'm sorry, grace, regeneration, uh, repentance. These things do kind of go together. There is a kind of sequence or a logical progression happening here. These aren't just sort of random thoughts that Jeffrey's uh, putting together here. And so this chapter, chapter 11 on repentance and faith, I think can help sort of continue to this illustration of sort of what salvation is and what it consists of. Of course, when you hear the word repent or repentance, I don't know about you, I often go back to uh, Matthew chapter 3 in the ministry of John the Baptist. And what's the, what's the famous phrase that John utters to anybody who will listen? What's he say, actually? Repent. That's, repent. The kingdom of God is near, right? And uh, we could go into, we could spend a lot of time talking about just that phrase. I mean, it's not even, it's barely even a complete sentence. Uh, packed with meaning that is but what's the message that john is bringing you need to repent and he's telling this to everybody repent now easy thing to say but what does it mean what does it mean what does john mean when he tells people to repent 
of what do we repent? How do we repent? What does it mean to repent? Say that again. Actually, literally means kind of to turn, to turn around, like to go back, right? So that implies that sort of there's a, you're on a bad path. You're in a, going in a bad direction. There's a different direction one ought to be going. Literally means turn around. Now, you can imagine this on a big jump then to think, what's that mean in terms of our, you know, the choices we make, the lives we lead? John is saying, stop doing that. Do something else, right? There's repent, turn away. In fact, that's probably maybe the best way to think of it. He's asking his listeners, turn away from your sins. Now, that's a, it's a mouthful. Easy to say, hard to do, right? Um, I've, I'm, let's all make a pledge right now. We'll make a pledge together with ourselves, all of us in this room. Let's all make a pledge right now never to sin again. Who's with me? We will stop sinning. We will never do it. This is the last time. Tonight is it. I see no hands up. I'll be the only one. Okay. We got, okay, it's me, it's me and Steve. We got it. We got it. <laughs> I think just saying that out loud was a sin, so I've already messed that up. Exactly. So there's, there's something to be said. How do, how do I turn away from my sin? So I, let's say I hear John the Baptist, and I agree, okay, let's, but what is that? That doesn't sound like a simple thing to do, return or turn away from my sin. The uh, Notice here, the chapter title is not just about repentance. It's repentance and faith. There's a strong implication here. Repenting is not possible without faith. And I'm going to sort of flip that around because I think Jeffrey's saying something similar as well. Faith is not really possible without repentance. These two things are so intertwined that you really can't disassemble them. Let me put it to you this way. Just uh, tell me what you think. Can you turn away from sin without turning to God? Could you just turn away from the sin but not embrace the God of the Bible? I think... Exactly. Now, one could... Now, people do this. I know, I can tell you, before I became a believer, I, I went through this several times. Wow, you know, I'm doing some bad stuff. I'm going to stop doing that. I'm just going to... I'm going to quit. I'm, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to make a New Year's resolution. I'm going to, I'm going to stop doing that. And I'm going to start doing this. Always with the best of intentions, right? I'm sure you know people. I imagine some of you have been in that same situation. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to stop doing that. I'm, I'm going to resolve and work hard and make sure I don't do that thing, whatever, or that group of things or whatever. And that's a great idea. And, and you, can, I don't know, you can even have maybe a modicum of success as long as you don't draw the circle too large, right? Giving up sin, maybe not. Giving up, I don't know, giving up caffeine for Lent, maybe. Maybe, unless you fall back, I don't know. But in terms of changing one's life, one doesn't do that oneself, does one? And, and this is why Jeffrey puts these two topics together. Repentance and faith must go together. You must turn, you're right, turn away from your sin, but in doing so, you're turning to God. And there's no middle ground. You can't turn away from sin and not to God. And notice, you can flip that around. Could you turn to God without repenting from your sin? Again, I might say, well, people might, in fact, on some level, cry out to God, fully intending not to really, you know, if I'm... I don't know, if I'm suffering in pain right now, I might ask for God's help. But I have no intention of changing my life. I just, I just want the pain to stop, right? I remember a movie starring Burt Reynolds. I don't know the name. Burt Reynolds is not worth remembering. Most of you probably don't care. But 
he uh, he was gonna he was gonna decide he was tired of it all. He was gonna end his life. He goes out into the to the ocean. He swims as far out as he possibly can so that he you know tires himself out. He can't go back. And he's out there flailing in the water and suddenly decides he wants to live. And he starts he's bargaining with God. God, if you save me, I'll keep the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. I'll learn the Ten Commandments, he says. <clears throat> As he's flashing around. He gets back to shore. Don't worry, it's okay. Happy ending and all. But but so in, in moments of desperation, we might say, okay, I'm going to turn to God. But you understand, you're not really turning to God if you still bring your sin along with you, right? So there's, there's a strong sense, I think, what Jeffrey's getting at here, in which turning away from your sin and turning to God are essentially the same act, right? You can't do one without the other. They are they're intimately intertwined together. Faith and repentance must be... They aren't just sort of two activities. They are, they're, they're intertwined together. He breaks them down here a little bit. Uh, if you turn with me to page uh, 57, which is really the first. This is a short little chapter. I don't know if you noticed this. This is like two pages. So if you couldn't study this one, then um, you probably are beyond hope. I said probably. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> On page uh, 57, I'm looking now at the third paragraph, first sentence. True repentance, he says, involves seeing sin for what it really is. That's kind of a, and then he goes on to describe that a little bit, but what do you think he means by that? What does he mean when he says you must see sin for what it really is? Again, kind of a loaded term here. I, I think you're exactly right, going back to the dumb movie that I can't remember the name of. Uh, when that character's out there floating in the water on the verge of drowning, and he says, I'll learn the Ten Commandments, right? There's a little bit of a, there's a little theological insight there. We often tend to kind of underdefine sin, right? So we have a couple of big things. And if they've ever had the opportunity to witness to somebody who kind of doesn't feel like a sinner, what will they say? Well, I've never killed anybody. I don't steal. Now, if you go to the, for example, to the Sermon on the Mount, right? What does Christ say about about killing someone? If you hate your brother, if you're angry with him unrighteously, that's you've broken the commandment. You've done it in your heart. Now, maybe you didn't, you know, smack him with a club, but you've sinned. Hard one for many people, especially men, to get around. If you have lusted in your heart, you've committed adultery. You've done it. You've done the thing. That's the sin. You've done it. It's a sin in your heart. So we, we, we kind of, like the Pharisees, right, we define sin down and then kind of push that away. Okay, it's only this and I don't do that. Neglecting the fact that indeed we embrace tons of sin all the time. And even, even, as, a, even as a believer, I can tell you, I, I can say easily, it's looking back in, in my life, especially before I became a believer, oh, I couldn't, have, I couldn't have told you a tenth of the sin in my life. I wasn't even thinking about it. I, like Jeffrey says here, I didn't really have a, a, a real sense of what my sin really was. I didn't care. didn't really want to know. But I'll tell you, even now, I'm not sure that I really do a good job of what Jeffrey's talking about here because I'm, it's part of our sin nature. We, kinda, we try to smush it down. We don't want to see the whole thing. It would be hard to take 
In fact, this is a prayer I often include when I, when I have my, my time alone with God. God, reveal to me my sin. Show it to me. Help me to see it because I know that it's there. I, I don't know what it is. I don't know always how I'm doing it. I mean, I see this. I see big stuff, but it's, boy, there's, there's got to be, there's more there. And, and we don't really tend to, to look at our sin honestly. And so you see what he's, where, where Jeffrey's going with this. How can you repent if you don't really perceive it properly in the first place? Right, so I can I can go to God. I can I can repent to God. I can I can go to my neighbors who I'm offended. Oh, sorry, I did that. Uh, to, you know, accept my apology. But if I'm not thinking about it, and I've you know I I apologize to one friend and neglect the other six because I don't think I said anything. You understand how this easily kind of you know again nobody's asking you to be perfect here, right? This is not the point. But when when for example, John the Baptist tells us to repent, he doesn't re- repent of some of the sin. He doesn't mean, you know, pick your two or three favorites and make sure you confess those. He means turn away, literally turn away from that sin. And in order to do that, you must, as, as Jeffrey says, true repentance involves seeing sin for what it really is. We've got to really know what that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you do next? I mean, you're going to tell me. Repent. Right. Right. If the Holy Spirit's not convicting, then you right. Yeah. 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 There, there's that element. Right. Right. I can't say the guy. I can tell him the message. Yeah. And I hope that God will give it. Yeah. Now, when you say the message, when I have the opportunity, maybe many of you are the same way. When I have an opportunity to talk to somebody about the gospel and to, you know, to be able to have that time with them, call me pessimistic, but I always start with the sin part. Because again, if you don't understand your need, there's no point of a savior. Jesus died for you. So what? I don't need anybody to die for me. Why'd he do that? What a, what a waste of his time, right? If you understand the need, right? If you understand, yes, you are so far away from God that there is no hope for you save the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, now that might be something worth thinking and talking about, right? But as he says, if you don't know the need, that's the problem, right? To which Jesus is the solution. Exactly, yeah. You know what's wrong with you? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, people tend not to respond well. Yeah, I don't respond well when people start telling me what's wrong with me. My first thought is, I know what's wrong with you, <clears throat> even if they're right, especially if they're right. So the, I said there's sort of two parts here, the repentance part and the faith part. Let me ask you, let's do a little brainstorming here. I could write this down on the board, but I don't feel like it. What are all the ways you can deal with your sin? <laughs> well, denying it is one way to handle that, right? There may be consequences ultimately to that, right? But yeah. I could ignore it, pretend it's not there, right? Actually, I'm good at that. What's that? Oh, that's a good one, right? Yeah, exactly. That's not sin. I, I had to do that. That was just necessary under the circumstances, yeah. He had it coming, right? I'm very good at this. Okay. <laughs> oh, oh, Mr. Righteous, okay. <laughs> Say that again? Yeah, this is exactly, this is it. I mean, really... There's really only but one way to deal with sin, and really you can't actually do it, right? So 
there's a sense in which, yes, we, we are in that process. We, we do have a role to play in a sense, but it's one that, that it's, it's, a, it's a role that God creates. It's a will that God instills in our hearts, right? So we can't do this on our own. We don't just, how many people heard John the Baptist say, repent for the kingdom of God is near? How many ignored him, right? So lot, lots of people heard it. The elect responded. And that's still, that's not, it's not less true today than it was then. So when you have the opportunity to talk to that neighbor or that coworker or whatever about your sin and his sin and his need and your need, um, unless they're elect, that doesn't that, that, that's, that seed is going to fall on ground that's not really going to receive it. No, exactly. It's no, this is, of course, again, our culture, just, this is just almost the antithesis of what many preachers look you know. Turn on television Sunday morning, what, not you know, one of the networks, but one of the others, lousy cable stations. What are you going to find? Exactly this message, right? That's exactly right. Turn with me just for a second uh, to page 58 here. The, uh, see, that little, uh, see that little subheading, ongoing repentance? Look at the sentence right above that one. He says, faith, this is Jeffrey writing, faith is a response of the mind and heart to the Savior of whom the gospel speaks. Notice here, he, uh, what I really sort of struck me about that sentence is it's response of the mind and heart. Especially, I hate to be careful how I say this, especially in Presbyterian circles, you can find people who, for whom their faith consists of assent to certain key doctrines. If I can say, you know, I believe in the doctrine of election, well, then I'm a Christian. Now, that's not really true. But, but especially people that, that we spend time with and we know, I think can easily fall into that trap. It's kind of an intellectual exercise. I, I, I assent to certain principles and doctrines, and therefore that's, you know, that's, that's the, my card member, my membership card is filled out once I get that. On the other hand, maybe outside Presbyterian circles, we live in a culture that's very emotive. And, you know, I feel and I, I experience stuff, and so I can, with my heart reach out to God. You see what Jeffrey's saying here, that faith is a response. I love that, by the way. So, you know, what happened? Why do we respond? Well, something has to have triggered the response, right? So, so there's an initiator there that's not us. Faith is a response in us to something else. It's a response to God. And it's a response, as he says, of the mind and the heart, right? Both of these things must happen. We must know God. We must also believe God. And these two, again, you can't pull them apart, right? If you have just one or the other, you probably don't really have a genuine faith there. It's not a real response yet. There's um, much more we could say here, but um, remember I pointed out how he usually includes a few questions at the end of the chapter just to provoke our thinking and to repeat himself. And um, if you're going to you know, sell a book, you've got to have some questions in the end. Question three is very insightful, though. Uh, he talks about David's uh, Psalm 51. I'll bet most of you have read Psalm 51. You're probably very familiar. It's one of my favorites, in fact. Uh, let me just turn to it. I wasn't going to do this, but I'm going to do it. I'm always on the fly, you know. Psalm 51. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's actually yeah, fairly lengthy, but look at some of the, You know this, this psalm well. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, we ignore our sin, right? We justify our sin. We do all sorts of things with our sin. But what's David say? It's there. Um, I, I know it's there. 
It's always before me. It's always a part of my life. So take it away. Blot it out, he says. And God does this, right? God responds. And should, I mean, he, this is true. This, 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 is a, this is a beautiful image here of David confessing his sin. You know, against you and you alone have I sinned. You know, I've done horrible things to people, but you're the God of creation. It's your law I've broken. And this is a bad thing. And yet, you skip to the end. Last couple of verses, what does he say towards, towards the Well, maybe back the last three verses. The sacrifice, sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good in Zion in your good pleasure, he says. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings, and the bulls. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. He's sort of putting it back sort of in God's lap, right? So this is what I've done. This is who I am. This is the sin that I bring. But you're the God who saves. And it's ultimately about um, bringing that before him. It's a beautiful image here, but look at what he says. Uh, uh, Jeffrey's question. David's repentance in Psalm 51 is that of a believer. Uh, that's true, right? I mean, an unbeliever, I don't think, can quite make this kind of prayer, right? You might come to God sort of, you know, seeking answers, but, but you have to be the real article here to be able to confess like this. But then here, Jeffrey asks an interesting, interesting question. Why is it that a, a Christian should need such a depth of repentance? Would not the fact that he can never lose his salvation make this unnecessary? Let me ask you, why on the front end, as we were talking about, you know, sort of the, the sinner, the, the unbeliever first coming to faith, okay, repent for the kingdom of God is near. But must we go on repenting day after day, year after year? If our salvation is assured, why must I continue to repent? What would you say to that? I think you're exactly right. Why so? Why? What's different about me that I that I go on repenting? What was that? Oh, it was very profound, but I can't repeat it. No. What, what has changed? Well, I think at the bottom of the, at the bottom line, this is it. Why do I have to keep repenting? Because I do keep sinning, right? So. The same word, and it's really even, in some ways, a very similar activity. When I come to faith, yes, I must confess those sins. I must repent in the way John the Baptist says to repent. But what's going to happen the next day, the next hour, the next minute, perhaps, I'm going to sin again, right? So this is why, by the way, I think it's very challenging to be a Catholic. You're always, it's like a bank account, and you're always sort of adding to the debt, you know, the debt part, and you've got to get credit. Oh, it's just so, so complicated. Uh, Fortunately, it doesn't really work that way. But, but you, understand, you understand sort of the problem that David has here is that he sinned. After he was a believer, he sinned. And so he comes back and he repents, and God does forgive. This is true, absolutely, right? It actually brings... I don't, I'm sure most of you agree. I know Jamie does because she just kind of said so. I always... I feel so much better when I actually do. I come to God, and it's it's in a way there's there's shame, right? I know it's a sin. I know I shouldn't have done that. I know it's wrong. I did it anyway, and there's a shame even just when it's just me and God. There's a certain shame and guilt that comes with, yeah, God, I did that. But bringing that to Him and 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 knowing that that forgiveness is there, even when I do it, sort of with that shame attached, he, he, the shame goes away with the guilt, doesn't it? 
So you know, done properly, yes, God actually uses that to restore us and build us up. Exactly, right. That's right. So exactly, you, you, can, you can say all the stuff you want. If, if, you're, if there's no faith there, then there really is no repentance and there really is no restoration. That's right. Why would you care if you offended God if you didn't love him in the first place? Right. So this is all, you're right, all flows from, from faith and, and vice versa. Let's, uh, let's take a few minutes to look at the next little chapter here. This chapter is kind of short also. Chapter 12 on reconciliation. Removing the hostility of sin. We talked about this before, uh, and you've heard me say it many times. If, if you've been at Christ Church for a while, you probably get tired of hearing me say it, because I only have about you know, four or five things I, I like to talk about that I keep repeating myself. This is one of them. But we talked about last time being dead in our sins, right? And uh, I want you to sort of keep that image in the back of your minds as we go through this. Prior to our regeneration, we're really not capable even I mean, what do you expect of, of, of a dead person, right? So in, in that sinful state, right, in which we are naturally find ourselves, how do we tend to regard or think of God? I mean, for some of you, maybe you don't even remember. I mean, if you, you, know, if you came to faith as a child, you might not recall what was it like before I believed. But for those of you who do have that memory, let me ask you, what was it like before you believed? How did you or did you think of God? Yeah, sometimes he might be like a trump card I might try to pull out, you know, in some desperate moment. Yeah. How about the times in between when you weren't in trouble? <laughs> okay, fair enough. That's pretty good. Todd, you were shaking your head. You just hate the question or? Yeah, certainly there's a, a great deal of negligence, right? We just, yeah, take that away. I don't have time for that. Yeah, yeah. That's free, exactly. Sure, yeah, you know, I, exactly. I've, I've ranked them, and I'm in the top half, so I'm, I'm good, right? Yeah. Yeah, there's like Hitler, Napoleon, <laughs> me. Whew, this is great. <clears throat> Yeah, that's, and that's actually, that's probably better than it is in some cases. I, I tell you, again, I'm going to repeat myself. Here's another one. Atheists have such contempt for God. I find this hard to understand. I mean, if you really think he doesn't exist, why would you hate him? I tend not to hate things that don't exist. Seems like a waste of my time. But not so for the atheist, evidently. But you understand... All of us sort of start out as atheists in the sense that we are rejecting God. So what form that rejection takes, if I go on the speaking circuit and tell everybody how much I hate him, or if I just ignore him most of the time, and pull him out maybe if I have some trouble, but I'm going to, as soon as that trouble is over, I'm going to go back to what I was doing, which is rejecting God, living life according to my terms, ignoring, contravening even his law, my relationship with God under those circumstances, no matter how you kind of package that up, you know, whatever you want to call it, however you want to describe it, there's enmity. I don't love him. I actually hate him. One way I can show my contempt is to ignore him 99% of the time. Ignoring might not sound bad. We're talking about the sovereign creator of the universe. 
Every second of your life exists because he permits it. I don't need that. That's contempt. Maybe you're actively out there convincing people, stay away from God, don't go to that church, come over here with me, let's go get drunk, this will be great. Whatever, however you go about it, it's contempt, right? It's what Jeffrey is calling here hostility. In our fallen state, we hate God. It can take different forms, but let's, let's call it what it is. It's contempt, it's hatred, it's hostility. We are angry. And it doesn't even make sense, right? Um, again, the atheist goes around talking about how much he hates God, even though he doesn't exist for whatever reason. Uh, but all of us in various ways, we, as sinners, as, as unbelievers, our relationship with God is even nonsensical. But we do it anyway. Let me, um, let me look at a couple of verses here with you. Starting in, uh, I'm going to flip around to two or three different ones, so if you have a Bible, uh, you might want to limber up your fingers for just a moment. Let's start in Romans chapter 5. Let's do that. Romans 5, verse uh, 10. This is a good one. And you probably even saw this coming, right? Uh, In verse 10, Paul writes... For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. But you see, it's that first part that's particularly operative for us here, right? Before we become believers, we are enemies of God. We're not neutral. We're not indifferent. We're actually adversarial, right? We are enemies of God. We are hostile towards him. Uh, But nevertheless... This is a beautiful thing. Nevertheless, he acted in such a way. He prepared the way that his son might come. This, by the way, is a beautiful thing to be talking about during Holy Week, right? I mean, tomorrow, Monday, Thursday, the, the day of that, you know, the Lord's Supper, and then, uh, you know, Good Friday and Easter and, 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 and all these things. I mean, think about it. That's what God is doing, and all of that plan is set in motion while we hate him. Knowing that we had contempt for him, knowing we were hostile to him, he does this and uses that to bring us and draw us towards him. That's incredible. That's just amazing. Let's flip ahead to another one. Uh, Let's turn to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. We'll start maybe in verse 13. And you see how Paul says something very similar here. But now in Christ Jesus, you you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You see even that image, right? We were not close but now we are but look how he goes on for him for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility see the very word hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to god in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility so you see this, this notion of this hostility that is there by God's initiative. He literally, look, he kills the hostility. I love that notion of killing hostility. seems kind of violent. And just uh, one, one or two more. Flip over to Colossians, just right down the road. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. Now I'm probably just repeating myself, but it's Paul actually doing all the repeating. If you don't like it, blame him. In verse 21, he says, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, 
in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So again, what's our condition? Yes, we're dead in our sins, but in that condition, we're also hostile to God. Notice even here the, the subheading of the chapter, removing the hostility of sin. We're not, don't ever get this wrong. We're not neutral towards God or indifferent towards him in our sinful state. We are adversaries. We are hostile towards him. And I don't know about you, my reaction, I, there are people who have been mean to me in my life. I will confess this now. Uh, there have been people who have been hostile towards me. You know what I tend to do? I get more hostile back. You want to see hostility? I can double down on that. Ah, brings me great satisfaction. That's not what God did. Oh, mankind hates me? I'll hate you right back. Imagine what the contempt of God would feel like. But that's not what we get. We get his patience. We ultimately get his love. Even the most wretched sinner who is not part of the elect still enjoys on some level God's favor. The fact that he has a life at all is God showing forbearance. Everybody is blessed in this way. And especially those who are his elect. What is the value of that? And you see this repeated here in three different passages from Paul. I want to take just a few moments to look at one more Pauline passage I want to back up to 2 Corinthians. This is where Jeffrey spends most of his time in this chapter. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we'll start at verse 18. So here Paul writes, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled, see again the key word, right? Through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. See, we're part of the way he then reconciles others, right? So we, we help speak the word to others. Uh, going on in verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So uh, this, this image of just reconciliation is beautiful. So he reconciles us, you know, us to him, and then he uses us, broken vessels that we are, he uses us as vessels of reconciliation. We take his gospel and and share it with others. This is an amazing thing. And so look what he says in verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. We aren't Christ ourselves, but we are his ambassadors. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Again, that's a, in a way, every page of Scripture is an Easter message, is a, is a Resurrection Day message, but this is, this is definitely one, right? I mean, how is this possible? Why would God do this? I don't know why he does it, but I'm glad he does. We just have a couple minutes. I'll just take a few moments to just kind of point this out. Uh, starting on page 62, Jeffrey takes this passage here from 2 Corinthians and kind of breaks it down. Look what he has, sort of four numbered points here. What he says, first of all, God does not count our sin against us, right? And that's actually, that's exactly what verse 19 says. That's not just him making this up. That is, in Christ, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Now, we do sin. And if God just wanted to leave it at that and just punish us appropriately for our sins, he could, right? And that would be just, and we could not complain, we could not say that something unfair was happening, he could do that and leave it at that, and that would be fair, right? But notice what he says here, God does not, at least for those who are his elect, do not count the sin, our sins against us. 
Look at what he says, number two, partly down the page. He does count our sins against Christ. This is mind-boggling. I sin, Christ gets punished. The sins are added to his tally. What did Christ ever do? What's the passage say? He didn't have any sin. He didn't do anything wrong. But my sins, your sins, our sins are counted against him, which takes us to number three. God is a just God. So unpunished sin, not really an option. We can't just leave it out there. He is righteous, so we can't have sin just sort of dangling, being ignored. He's not ignoring our sin. He counts it against Christ. And then number three, Christ bears the punishment that was due to us. I realize I'm just, I'm preaching to the choir, not that you all sing, but it's it's a metaphor, really. You're not really the choir. But you see what he's saying here? I know you know this, but it doesn't hurt to hear it again from time to time. Christ takes the punishment. This is, this is Good Friday right here, point number three. And look what Jeffrey says in number four. All just from this one little paragraph here in 2 Corinthians. God credits the righteousness of Jesus to us. Talk about what you don't deserve. So yours, you sin. He takes that sin, counts it against Christ. He takes Christ's perfect righteousness and counts that for you. There's, that does not make any kind of human sense at all. It's an incredible deal. It's just the deal of a lifetime. It's the deal of all creation. It's unbelievable. And that's the God we have. Now, how you cannot get excited by that and not respond to that, I don't know. But I do know we live in a world that does not respond to that message very well, typically. It goes, it is, it is really too good to be true, right? I mean, that's, that's really, that is in fact the case. And, and it's that, it goes back to the root here of the chapter. It's that hostility. I don't want to hear God's deal. I hate him. I want nothing to do with him. That's what our sin does to us. Staring in the face of a God who would not only forgive, transfer the sin, but transfer that perfect Christ righteousness to you, the sinner looks at that and says, no, I don't want any of that. I've got a life to lead over here. That's a tragic thing when people are able to walk away from that in that fashion. I just want to leave you with, again, sort of what's Jeffrey's M.O. here. He has a, 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 a short chapter followed by a series of, of questions. And here, he also, at the end of each chapter, he also includes a quotation from some noteworthy author. This is an author that many of you probably have read, J.I. Packer, uh, one of the great um, sort of theologians of our age, in fact. But look at what he says here about reconciliation. Reconciliation, Packer writes, this is on page 63. Reconciliation means the ending of enmity and the making of peace and friendship between persons previously opposed. Enmity means hatred, right? Contempt. It's the ending of that. God and men were at enmity with each other by reason of men's sins, but God has acted in Christ to reconcile sinners to himself through the cross. The achieving of reconciliation was a task which Christ completed at Calvary. In virtue of Christ's finished work of atonement, God now invites sinners everywhere to receive the reconciliation and thus be reconciled to him. Believers enjoy through Christ an actual reconcilement with God, which is perfect and final. And that's where he ends his chapter here. That's probably where we should end, unless any of you have any questions here about either of these topics we've been talking about this evening. Yeah, it was genuine punishment. Yeah. I know. That's and that is mind-boggling to me. Yeah. Yeah. 
As, as Norm says, it is too good to be true, except it is true. It's also very good. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Speaking of which, let's, let's take a moment to pray together, shall we? Gracious God, your patience with us is beyond measure. The, your word says that while we were still enemies, we, we were in contempt, we hated you, you, nevertheless, put into operation a plan to redeem us. You sent your son to live that perfect life we were just talking about, to die for our sins and make it so that, that his righteousness could be credited to our accounts. Lord, that is, that is beyond measure. That is beyond est- estimating in value. But, Lord, we are grateful that we are people that you have called and chosen. And, Lord, as, as Paul reminds us here in, in Corinthians, may we respond in gratitude, and may we become the ambassadors that, that take your word out to others. Help us to become people who are willing, eager, in fact, to share the, the blessings we've enjoyed and to be able to take that word and share it with others. Father, this evening as we look ahead to uh, these important days in the, the Christian calendar, uh, Monday, Thursday, when we remember Christ with his disciples in the upper room, and, and Good Friday, his death on the cross, and then ultimately uh, Sunday we look ahead to the resurrection and the empty tomb. Father, help us to be mindful of these events. This is a great time of year to reflect upon Christ's sacrifice and, and our gratitude and our duty to you in, in, in response. Father, help us to be a time when we can indeed draw closer to Christ, be reconciled even more, and love you all the better for it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all very much. Hope you have a, a great evening.